Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, let's dive right in. We are, like I mentioned, um, been going through the entire book of Acts and we left off last week in Acts chapter 17, and let me catch you up in case you missed Acts chapter 17. We're studying this book, it's the history of the church, and we've come to a part where the focus in the book of Acts is really on one man, and that's a man by the name of Paul. And this man, Paul, is a missionary. He was a Jewish man, a Jewish leader that God literally knocked him down And Jesus showed himself to him, and this man became a follower of Jesus. He went from someone who was persecuting Christians and and hurting Christians, putting Christians in jail, killing some Christians, to being the man who is one of the, the greatest apostles, one of the greatest witnesses for Jesus that the world has ever seen. And so we're, we're kind of studying his missionary journey and what he's been doing and where he's been going. We left off in Acts chapter 17 with him. He was with his, his friend, his companion, Silas, and his, pro, his protege, a man by the name of Timothy, a young man that Paul was discipling and Paul was raising him up and training him to do the work of the ministry. And so because of persecution in a place called Thessalonica and Berea, these two different places, they got separated. And so we see Paul once again, he's on his own, he's by himself. Paul was a man who very much recognized he needed people with him, which is a revelation that some of you need. You need people with you. We've never been called to do this by ourselves. Christianity is a, I love to say it this way, Christianity is a team sport. You've heard the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, with our kids, sometimes it takes a few villages, but (laughs) it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to win in the kingdom. It takes a village to stay holy. It takes a, a village to stay married. Come on, married people. And so we need that community. And I believe Paul even recognized that. It's why he always had someone with him. And he was even either training someone or really and or training someone and he had someone with him that he would do the work of the ministry with. Well, we see Paul by himself now because they got separated. And now this man is, is just preached in Athens, which is a famous city for Greek philosophy. And he's been there trying to win them to Jesus. And the truth is, is that Paul wasn't as, quite as successful as he thought he should be in Greek. Or he wasn't as um, successful, excuse me, as he has been in previous missionary journeys, different cities that he's gone to when he was in Athens. He had taken this different tactic because Paul would use many different tactics when explaining the gospel. And we talked about this last week when he stood in front of the Areopagus or Mars Hill, some people call it, and he's preaching to these Greek philosophers and only a few of them get saved. And so Paul is now by himself and he leaves Athens and he goes to a place called Corinth. Everybody say Corinth. So let me explain a little bit about this. Let's go to Acts chapter 18, verse one. This is what it says. 
Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, if Corinth sounds familiar, it should, because Corinth is who the Apostle Paul wrote the books 1st and 2nd Corinthians to. So these two books that you've, many of you have read over and over again, they were from the city and the people that this book was written to was the city of Corinth. Let me explain a little bit about Corinth so you understand what Paul was up against as he's preaching about Jesus in this, in this community. Corinth was the capital city of Achaia and Achaia was a Roman province and it was a really big Roman province. Some people say it was 20 times the size of Athens where Paul just left. It was substantially bigger. And Corinth was a very, it was a very prosperous place. It was very, um, in some senses, a very peaceful place. Corinth was kind of like, well, I'll explain it to you in a minute. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Corinth was very prosperous, a lot of wealth, a lot of resources, and they were well known for their bronze work and their copper work. As a matter of fact, in the temple that we've read about in early on in the book of Acts, we talk about this place called, in the temple that, that had the gate called Beautiful. How many of you remember the gate called Beautiful? Where it was a big, giant, beautiful gate. That's why they called it the gate called Beautiful, because it was really pretty. And that gate was made out of bronze work that came from Corinth. So they were very well known for all of their, their skills and their architecture. They were also really known for sports, kind of like Louisiana, come on somebody. We're known for our athletes, not LSU, not this year, but come on Cajuns. How I many, we got any Cajuns fans in the building? This is y'all's year. This is y'all's year. You can say anything bad about LSU that you want to, and we'll give you a free pass this year. But they were known for athletes. So they're prosperous. They have lots of athletes. They have, they're known for architecture. They're intellectual people. It seems like there's a lot of things going right for Corinth. But they were also known for something else. They were known for, widely known for sexual perversion. It was a very perverse city. And as I mentioned last week, hopefully you see within culture, not a whole lot of things have changed. They were widely known for their perversion. And not only were they perverse, but let me, let me put it like this. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a compliment if someone called you a Corinthian. Back in the day, if you were called in this time, if they called you a Corinthian, that was an insult. They were basically saying, you're a pervert. That's how widely known the Corinthians were known for their perversion. Now, Corinth was, if, if you're trying to think of a place that Corinth would kind of correspond to in our day, Corinth was, would kind of, I'll put it like this, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Right, if that triggers anything in your mind, hopefully good memories, not bad memories in your mind, but what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? Because it, it was known for its perversion. And here's the twist that makes it all the more perverted. It was known for, not for prostitution, but not just um, prostitution, it was known for religious prostitution. And this is what I mean by that. In Corinth, there was a temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. 
And they, at this temple of Aphrodite, they had what was called temple priestess, which were really temple prostitutes. And one of the main sources of income, some scholars say, in the city of Corinth was the prostitution that happened at the temple. There were thousands of temple prostitutes. That's what this city that Paul finds himself in was known for. You talk about a challenge. You talk about walking into a place, I'm going to be the light of Jesus. Listen, you needed much more than a Christian bumper sticker when you went to Corinth. They were, wide, they were successful, they had all of these things going for them, but they were very perverted and very perverse in their culture. And so this is where Paul finds himself. Now, we continue to see Paul using the strategy that we talked a little bit about last week, where Paul went in his missionary journeys to, to build the kingdom of God and to make disciples and to plant churches, he would go to these larger cities. And when he would go to these larger cities, he would... He would preach the gospel there knowing that the gospel would spread to other places. Is it a little dark in here to y'all? Can we open up the windshields or something or cut the lights up a little bit? I feel like it's a little dark. So thank you. And God said, let there be light. And there it is. So he would, he would go to these bigger cities and he would know if I can preach the gospel to these big cities, then the gospel will spread all around to all of the smaller communities. And we've talked about that. That's what our church does. That's what our church wants to do. We want to go to communities and out of our churches, plant other works for God all throughout the communities. Why? Because God loves all of us. God loves all of this community of Acadiana. Am I right? And so he wants his kingdom to spread. And so that was Paul's strategy. Now, we also see that Paul took a little bit of a different approach in Corinth than he did in Athens. Like I just mentioned, when he was in Athens, he went to these Greek philosophers and he spoke their language. He talked with a whole lot of intellect and he talked a whole lot about intellectual things. He talked like he was a smart person to smart people in order to win them. But when he got to Corinth, he took a different approach. How do I know that? First Corinthians chapter two, verse one says this. It says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Let me stop there for a moment. Some of us, when we're trying to share our faith with people, you may get a little intimidated when you're talking to somebody who, oh, I, that whole God thing, listen, I'm too smart for that. Um, I don't believe in, I believe in science. And that can almost cause us to, oh, oh my gosh, I'm not sure, what do I do, what do I do? Listen, you serve the God of the universe. All science does is try to figure out how he did what he did. It doesn't tell you how he, what he did and who did it. God did all of that. So when, you, when you're sharing your faith with somebody, when you're sharing God and you're sharing what Jesus did, you always have the advantage because the God of the universe lives inside of you. Amen. And Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't use the same tactic that I did in Athens that didn't work that well for me. What I did is I decided I'm not going to know anything else. I'm not going to talk to you about anything intellectual. I'm going to forget everything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you with simple language about a simple gospel that could change your life forever. 
And then he goes on to say this, verse three, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. The gospel that we preach, the good news about Jesus, is powerful. It has the power. Think about where you were before you heard this gospel or you accepted this gospel. Think about where you were. And this message changed your entire life. That's the power of the message that we carry. That's the power of the God that we serve. He can transform our lives with his message. So never be intimidated by someone who's intellectual. And I know some of us, Christmas time is coming around and you're like, I'm going to have to sit next to my uncle and he's got a PhD and he's blah, 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 blah. Or some of you are like, I don't, I'm going to have to sit next to my uncle. He's going to be high the whole time. I don't know. I'm gonna... <laughs> the gospel has the power to transform their lives. And Paul didn't just come with, this, with just his speech. He said, I came with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to argue with someone. I don't know if God is real. Okay, well, you see that sick person? God just healed them in front of you. Tell me he's not real. Paul said, I didn't just come, I didn't come relying on my wisdom. I came relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says something else. And he said this in verse 3, he said, I came to you in weakness and timid. Now, this is this bold man, the Apostle Paul, who got stoned almost to death and got right back up and went right into the same city and kept preaching. But Paul, like I mentioned last week, is starting to find himself getting discouraged. He's starting to get tired. He's starting to get a little bit of weak, a little, excuse me, a little weak. How many of you have ever found yourself there? You feel strong, you feel powerful, and then all of a sudden, life just keeps hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. And all of a sudden, when you once were so strong, you now find yourself weak and discouraged. And I I, I mentioned this to some leaders today. Some of you find yourself in this holiday season going, man, I, I know I should be excited, but I don't feel excited. I know I should feel joyous about this season, but I don't. I just feel weak. I just feel discouraged. I want you to know something. God sees it and he cares about it. He cares about your weakness. He cares about your discouragement. He doesn't just care that you come to church and you check the box. God loves you and that means he cares about every area of your life. And And I hope this message today encourages you to lean on his strength to trust in his word, to trust in the actual promises that he makes to you. So back to Paul. Let me explain some reasons why Paul is discouraged. Paul is away from his friends, like I mentioned. So he's been by himself. He wasn't successful with his trip in Athens like he probably expected to be. The man had been beaten up, put in prison for doing the right thing. His own people were turning against him. The people that he loved were turning their backs on him and accusing him. 
and causing other people to turn their backs on you. How I many you know it's bad enough when people turn on you, it's worse when they start getting other people to turn on you as well with them. That's what Paul was up against. That's what he was facing. And he was in need of encouragement. And God started sending him some encouragement. Verse two, there in Corinth, there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Isn't that, isn't that sweet, Priscilla and Aquila? Isn't that just cute? How many of y'all hate people like that? When you see like those couples that come in and they have like matching Christmas sweaters on, and you're like, oh, some of you are like, oh, that's cute. Some of you are like, oh. Let's keep going. All right. So Priscilla and Aquila, they had just left. The Bible said they had just left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. That's very important. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So the first encouragement that comes to Paul while he's by himself trying to build the kingdom of God and he's getting discouraged as God sends him some friends. He gets to this place and he, he meets this guy named Aquila and his wife named Priscilla. That's refreshing. Listen, it's just refreshing to be with godly people sometimes. It's just refreshing when you've worked your job all week, you've had the, the daylights beat out of you. Sometimes it's good to just come to church and be with people who love God like you do and let them encourage you. Yeah. And so, so that's, where, that's where Paul finds himself. Listen, I, I had a long, long weekend of very good, fruitful things. And, and last night I was tired and I went to a little celebration with some people that I know and I love. And I can, can I just tell you, it was just refreshing to be around people who love God. It was just refreshing to be around people who are there to encourage one another. Listen, we all need that. If the apostle Paul needed that, guess what? So do you. So when we live our lives isolated, going, I don't know if I can trust anybody. I don't know. There's no wonder you're discouraged. Open up your heart to the people God has sent to you. Can I just tell you, there are some people who aim to hurt you, but not everybody does. There are legitimately trustworthy people out there that God will put in your path if you will accept the gift that he's given you. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Now, how did, how did he meet them? Well, some scholars believe that in the, those synagogues, and Paul would go to synagogue every Saturday, right? That was the, that was the outbranch. That was almost like the Jewish church in these different cities. When Paul would go there, some scholars say that you would sit together with people who had the same profession as you. And the Bible tells us that Paul was a tent maker, he was a tent maker. And so he was sitting, not like the, the kind of camping tents that we have. He was really kind of like a leather worker and the special hair, that, the animal hair that came from um, Tarsus where he was from. And so they would make, they would take that animal hair and that leather work and they would make these tents, these little things that would help cover you. And so that was Paul's profession. By, that was his trade. That's what he was taught to do. And he was likely taught that by his dad. And I heard a preacher say this, and I think it's so important. Listen to me, men. Pay close attention to this as I say this. 
Teach your sons how to work. Teach your sons how to work. I've heard it put like this. If you don't teach your sons how to work, you teach them how to steal. If you don't teach your sons how to work, you teach them how to manipulate. Or you teach them how to be lazy. Teach your sons how to be men. And men work. And I understand there have been different situations in our economy and all of those different things that have, that have caused some of us to not be able to have a job. And if you, but if you do not have a job, you need to be actively pursuing a job. Paul went as far as to say this in 1 Thessalonians. He said, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So men, put your hands to something. Model that for your sons and teach them how. Don't sit back and go, oh, those millennials, those that next generation, they're so lazy. Show them how to work then. Show them how. So Paul's a tent maker. And he's sitting with this, this guy named Aquila and he, he's got his, his little wife and they're in their Christmas matching sweaters and, they're, and he's like, what's up with y'all? And they say, well, we're, Paul, I, I know we're in the, the synagogue together, but I just want you to know we're, we're Christians, like we follow Jesus. Paul's like, what? No way, I am too. How many of y'all had that moment at your job? And it's like all of a sudden you find that you find that other Christian there and you're like, we know. <laughs> right? <laughs> Paul had that moment because he's traveling around and he's planting these churches and he's building the kingdom and he's discouraged. And it's so refreshing that God sends him Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla end up becoming lifelong friends for Paul. Paul, they say, Paul mentions him on, in his letters that years after this fact, they become lifelong friends for Paul. Can I just tell you, you have a gift from God when he sends you a godly friend. Don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. Don't take their phone calls and go, ah, I'll call them next month. <laughs> Steward those gifts that God has given you. Steward him wisely because it's, it's a great gift from him. So anyway, Paul, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla and they form this friendship and that's the first encouragement that comes to him. Now let me mention this because it says that they were, they had just come from, from Rome, from Italy. They were deported and the history tells us that around 4950 AD an edict was made to deport all of the Jewish people that lived in Rome basically to kick them out of Rome. Why did that happen? History tells us that there was, there was some rioting that had been taking place in Rome. There were these riots and the riots were over somebody by the name of Crestus. Crestus. Now here's the, here's the unique thing. History doesn't, there's no famous person in history at this time with the name Crestus. And so a lot of scholars believe that it was actually just a mispronunciation of Christus meaning that the Jews were probably rioting over the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. And so they're preaching about the Christ and so the Jews start getting up in arms and so the, the emperor basically says, yeah, y'all wanna fight over this? All of y'all leave. So he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome at that time, they were deported. So let's keep going, verse four. 
Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. Paul is doing his job as a missionary. He's going out and he's preaching every single Sabbath day. So once a week he's in the temple, excuse me, or in the synagogue preaching to the Jews and to the Greeks, trying to reach them for Jesus. Verse five, and the next encouraging thing that happened to Paul. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. Now two encouraging things just happened for Paul. Beyond meeting Aquila and Priscilla and getting encouraged by that, now Paul's companions come back. Now they finally get back to him. So Timothy and Silas are there, and that brings life to Paul. But not only do they come back, they bring Paul a financial gift from the Macedonian church that he planted, and they gave those resources to Paul. And that encouraged Paul. Why? Because Paul had been working a job. Paul, that's how he met Aquila and Priscilla because Paul went right back. He started preaching once a week in the church, but then the rest of the week he was working his job as a tent maker. And so when they brought this gift, well, let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let me read, let me keep reading it. He testified to the Jews, excuse me, let me go right back. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So what happened? After they brought this gift, they allowed Paul the opportunity to be able to focus his time on ministering to the people and to the word of God. So before when Paul was working the job, he could only go into the the Sabbath once a week and actually do the ministry. But now that this gift came, Paul was able to do the ministry full time, to spend all of his time trying to reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. So Paul is there in the the synagogue trying to reach these people and going among the Jewish people and trying to tell them about Jesus. And they just rejected him, breaking his heart all the more. So they they reject him and reject what he's talking about with Jesus. And Paul finally gets to the point where he says, you know what? shaking the dust off my clothes and your blood is on your own hand, your own head. In other words, I'm not responsible for you anymore because you've heard the truth and now it's on you. And that's what he does to them. And it's two very important things that we need to know from that. Number one, once you hear truth, you are then responsible for the truth that you hear. Once we cannot claim ignorance whenever we know the truth. And you saying, well, I forgot that, does not give you the right to do that. I tell my kids this all the time, and some of you are probably going to steal this. You're welcome. (laughs) When my kids say, oh, I just forgot, like, that's the eraser that can erase everything that we said. I say, you didn't forget. You chose not to remember. You chose not to remember. We are responsible once we hear the truth. And the other thing is that what Paul was saying, this is so ironic, because what Paul was saying is, you know what, I'm going to shake the dust off the same way that you Jews shake the dust off your feet when, when you leave the Gentiles. Because in that day, Jewish people, like I've mentioned this in previous messages, Jewish people, they so disdained the Gentiles 
that when they would travel in, Jew, in Gentile areas, when they would finally get back to a Jewish area, they would literally shake the dust off of their feet, basically saying that the Gentile world is so screwed up and jacked up, I don't even want the dust from their land on me. So Paul is turning around that same judgment that they have, and he's turning around on them. Church, be very careful about the judgments you make on other people. Because the judgments that you make on other people may turn around and come back on you. Every time you point a finger at somebody, be careful because you may have three or four of them pointing right back at you. It's very important for us to know. Do we judge things? Yes, we judge and we assess and we make a personal judgment. Okay, I don't think that's right, that's wrong. We don't place a judgment on people. God does that. That's the distinction. That's the difference. So Paul is saying, you know what? I'm done with y'all. You've heard, you've heard the truth, <clears throat> excuse me, and you don't want it. So now I'm going to go to those people who do want it. So he goes to the Gentiles. He leaves there and he goes to preach to the Gentile people. And like I mentioned before, Paul was now able to do the ministry full time. And the second, I'm not going to read it, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, you can go there in your own time. Paul tells the Corinthians, I didn't take anything from you. I didn't, I didn't take a salary from you because I didn't want you putting that off on me thinking I was here to, just to take your money. I came to you just to preach the gospel to you and I didn't accept a thing from you. That was him going, listen, my heart and my motives were pure. I just wanted you to, to meet Jesus. I just wanted God's kingdom to spread amongst you. Some of you may go, well, well, all preachers should do that. Don't forget, it was the Macedonian church who sent him the ability to be able to do what he did full time. So there was still a body that was helping to support the work that God was doing. And Paul even goes as far later on as to say this, don't muzzle an ox when it's trading. That's a picture of back then oxen. I don't know why I'm saying all this, but oxen would, they would, they would do the work. They didn't have John Deere tractors. They had oxen. And the oxen would, would do the work and they would pull the plow and they would allow the oxen to eat while they were plowing the field. And it was cruel for you to allow the oxen to plow and but to muzzle it so that it couldn't eat while it was doing that. Paul was saying, that's dumb. Don't muzzle the oxen while it's trying to do its job. Otherwise, you're not going to get out of it what you need. And so the Macedonians provided this opportunity for Paul. But I will say this. This is very important. For those of you who feel like there's a call of God on your life to do the ministry, one day, pastor, I'm going to be in the ministry, especially the young people. One day I'm going to be in the ministry. I'm going to do this. Don't wait till you're paid by the church to do the ministry. Do it now. Do it now. As a matter of fact, the people that are on my staff, on my team, part of the reason why they're on my staff and on my team is because they were doing the ministry before they were paid by the church to do the ministry. They showed they had a heart for God and a heart to do those things. That's when God opened up the door for them to be able to do it. And so listen to me. I, if you're young, you're like, one day, don't wait, start now. Start now. And let me explain what the role of a, a pastor and the fivefold ministry, like the Bible talks about, is even there for. I have a responsibility as your pastor to care for you, to lead you, to shepherd you, to take care of your souls. That is my responsibility. 
But Ephesians also tells me my responsibility is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's what the Bible says. So the mindset that the person on the stage or the person for the staff, they work for us to do the ministry. That's not even biblical. I'm sorry your church taught you that, but your church was wrong. Your church was wrong. My job is to equip you to do everything God has called you to do in building the kingdom. That's what his word says. Let's keep going. So verse seven, Paul says, your blood is on your head. I'm going to the Gentiles. Then he left and went to the home of Tatius, Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. So Paul is preaching, and this person who lives right next door to the synagogue ends up getting saved. Then the leader of the synagogue ends up getting saved. Think about that. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the cross, we're all on level playing field. It doesn't matter how quote unquote religious you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how needy you are. We're all the same when it comes to the cross. Every one of us has to bow our knee to the cross. Well, I'm somebody, not at the cross. I'm successful, not at the cross. We all come in need. We all come in need. And so here's this very successful religious man who has to bow his knee to Jesus as his Lord. And this Gentile man who lives next door to the church who probably got mad at the noise they were making at the synagogue. Every time those people have an event, I got to know about it. Thanks a lot. For those of you who ever lived next to a church, you know what I'm talking about. All right. So he's preaching and these people get saved. They get born again. God has a way of reaching anyone, anywhere, at any time. God sees people. God's not impressed by all of our, our quote unquote significance. God's impressed by our faith. God's impressed in our ability to say, I trust you. I'm going to follow you. That's what Jesus wants. So let's keep going. Verse 9. One day the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. This, don't miss this. The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Why would God tell Paul not to be afraid? Probably because he was afraid. Probably because in his discouragement, in all of this stuff that had been happening to him, it had gotten to him. Some of us have lots of problems and things around us, but you know the difference when you have problems around you and when those problems get inside of you. And for Paul, he'd been bulldozing and running through, and now he's at the point where he's starting to get afraid. And the Lord shows up to him 
and makes him a promise. And he says, son, I'm going to protect you. You're not going to be harmed in this city. I want you to be bold. Don't hold on. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that. Don't be silent. Speak up for God. So nervous. What if they reject me? They might. But what if they accept what what you're saying? What if they receive what you're saying? So God tells him. He makes this promise to him. When he was discouraged. And we all get there. We all get tired. Listen to me. Even Jesus got there. So before you look down on someone who's in a weak place in their life, I want you to remember this. Even Jesus Christ had a weak moment of discouragement. Pastor, what are you talking about? I don't remember reading that. Yes, you did. In the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Jesus is there praying right before the moment he came into the world for. And he's sweating blood. The people he had been leading are falling asleep next to him. They can't even hold, they can't even pray with him one hour. And Jesus is telling God, God, if there's any other way for this to happen, please take this away from me. God, in other words, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. This is going to be too much for me. And in that weak moment, Jesus says something that we need to say as well. Father, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, here's the thing about discouragement. You don't find your strength in your own will. You don't find your own strength in your ability to plow through and to press through and to be tough. I'm resilient. I know how to. That's not where Jesus found it. Jesus found his strength the same place Paul did in surrender. You find your strength in surrender. In other words, God, what do you want me to do? If you want me to do that, that's what I'll do. Because it's in that surrender that he gives you the grace that you need to keep going. In that surrender is where you find the strength to keep going. You don't find it in your own strength. You don't find it in your own willpower. You don't find it in your own ability to plow through. You find it in the grace of God. So we find it in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. That's what the Bible says. So we find, we find Paul here. He's afraid. And let me just tell you, we talk a little bit about this in freedom. For those of you who've gone through freedom and for those of you who are going to go through freedom, we talk about fear. Fear is like a snake. It starts to wrap around you and it slowly starts to constrict was maybe starts as a small fear, starts to take over your life. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? Oh my gosh. I want you to know something, understand something. We talk about the fear of the Lord a lot here, especially in this series. It's been right here in front of us in the book, in some places, some key places. But this is why, one of the reasons why we fear the Lord. If you fear God, you don't have to fear everything else. You're gonna have to fear something If you don't fear God and you decide not to do it God's way, you open yourself up to have to fear. What about this? What if this happens to me? What if this happens to my family? What if that happens? But when you fear the Lord, the Bible says the angels of the Lord are encamped around those who fear him. So that means if I fear God, I don't have to fear anything else. He takes care of that. He hems me in. He protects me. I'm underneath his covering. 
And I don't know about you, but I know one thing. God's a lot smarter than me. He's a lot bigger than me. He's a lot stronger than me. He knows the plans of my enemy even when I don't. When I fear the Lord, he encamps his angels around me and they protect me. So Paul finds himself in this place of of just surrender. God, if you want me to stay here, I'll stay here. And the Bible tells us he ends up staying in this city for a year and a half. This is outside of Antioch, his home church. This is his longest stint to date in any place. When he was in the, one of the last cities, I believe it was Thessalonica, and he planted the church there. He was there for three weeks planting the church and left. He stayed in Corinth for one, a year and a half because he had the word of God. God said, son, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. Now, this is important for you to know, too. As you're trying to understand the Bible, understand scriptures, there are times when we take blanket promises in the Bible and we try to apply them to situations that they don't apply to. Don't do that because we get mad at God going, God, well, you didn't do what your word says, so therefore you must not be true. And I believe God's up there going, yeah, I never promised you that. God, how come I'm a millionaire? I'm not a millionaire yet. I never said you would be. It's not in the Bible. God, how come I'm having a hard time? Didn't you say that you were going to take care of me and protect me from all of this stuff? Yeah, but I never said you weren't going to have a hard time. As a matter of fact, I promised you that you would. Jesus literally promised us. He promised his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Put that on your refrigerator. Make a note card of that and quote that when you're driving around in your car. In this world, I will have hardship. Some of you will lose your lives. Right? We don't quote those scriptures, but those are promises as well. So understand, it's important that you understand God's promise and how they operate in your life. That's why you need to get in your Bible and learn to understand what the Bible is actually saying to you. Why am I saying that? Because of verse 12. Because of the very next thing that happens. Verse 12 says this, but when Galileo, now let me just stop there. Some of you who know history and know Greek philosophy and all of that, you've heard of a man named Seneca. A man named Seneca was a famous Greek philosopher. Galileo was Seneca's brother. And he tells us in history about this man, Galileo. Let's go back to this though. But when Galileo became governor of uh, Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. Wait a minute, time out, God. Didn't you just tell Paul that he was, you were gonna protect him? Didn't you just tell Paul not to be worried and not to be fearful? then why is Paul being brought before the Roman governor? Why is this happening? God, can you explain this to me? Because again, God promised Paul that he was going to protect him. God never promised Paul he wouldn't have resistance. God never promised Paul that he, wouldn't, that he was not going to have anything he needed protection from. You don't need protection when there's no danger. You need protection when there's danger. And so 
God never promised Paul he wouldn't have hard times. God never promised you you wouldn't have hard times. But that's why it's important for us to understand God's word. Now let's keep going. But God always keeps his promises. I want you to know that. Verse 14. But just as Paul started to make his defense. So Paul is there. They bring Paul in front of Galileo. And they're saying, Paul, okay, Paul's doing all of this stuff. And Paul's like, okay, well, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to have to tell them. The Bible says this. As soon as Paul started to make his defense, Galileo turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews. If this was a case involving some wrongdoings or a serious crime, in other words, this ain't important to me. I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names of your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. In other words, they come accusing Paul. They're ready to get Paul in trouble. But because Paul had God's promises, the leader of the, 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 the governor, excuse me, of that, of that whatever, the proconsul, he basically says, take your judgments and go somewhere else with it. I have no, I have no problems with this man, Paul. And the crowd, listen to this, verse 17, the crowd then grabs Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Galileo paid no attention. In other words, the crowd, now the, the, the Greek actually talks about this. One of the var- variations of this verse talks about the crowd. The crowd is talking about the Greek people who were there, not the Jews. The Greek people that were there, they're watching this thing happen and they saw the fact that Galileo didn't care about what was going on. So they seized that as an opportunity to get the Jews. So they go to the Jews and they beat the new leader of the synagogue. Because remember, the other leader of the synagogue, the man named, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, I'm so sorry, Crispus. The man named Crispus became a Christian and started following Paul. So now they put a new leader there named Sustenus. And so the Jews are there accusing Paul and this, this group of Greeks now turn and they beat him. What am I saying? God can take a situation that was meant to harm you and turn it around on those who meant to harm you. God can take the plan. Come on, it's good. God can take the plans of the enemy, the devil, and turn it around on the devil. God can take that harm and that heartache and that pain that you feel and turn it into the best thing that's ever happened to you and turn it against the enemy. I've seen people who have walked through the hardest times of their life take that pain and use it to become the greatest ministers to people who are going through the exact same thing that they faced. Seen it happen. It happened to Jesus. The enemy thought that he won when Jesus died on that cross. The enemy thought he had the victory when he had Jesus killed and the Romans killed him. He thought he won until the third day. And he realized that God's plan the whole time was to turn that thing around and defeat sin and defeat death. God has a way of turning the plans that the enemy has against you around on him. That's what happens here. So they beat Sustenance, the leader of the synagogue. They beat him right there. And Galileo sits back and he watches it happen. 
But I want you to see something so special that Paul says. And this is just the grace and the mercy of God. I believe this context. I believe this. Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first verse. This is what he says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother, Sustenus. So this second synagogue leader who was beat right there with the Jews ends up becoming a Christian and following Jesus. Tell me God doesn't have a plan. God knows what he's doing. God sees your plan. God sees your pain. God sees what you're facing. And today I hope this one thing came across to you. If you're discouraged, he cares about it. And he will send the people to encourage you. And he will send the promises of his word to encourage you. He will send the resources you need to encourage you. He loves you and he's for you. If you are following him, if you are serving him with your life, if you are born again, God will send what you need. But you got to trust him and you got to trust his timing. Got to trust. Paul, Paul didn't, Paul wasn't this person who was never discouraged. We see clearly that he was. But God sent what he needed to encourage him. Verse 18, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. Then he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Sincrea. There he shaved his head. Come on, bald men. According to the Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow, then he set sail for Syria. Listen to this, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. At the word of God, Paul stayed at the place God told him to stay. And God protected him while he was there. This wasn't a blanket promise that Paul was never going to have harm, that people were never going to harm him. Because the truth is, is once Paul leaves there and he keeps preaching, he starts getting other prophetic words saying that you're going to be harmed, Paul. But at this point, he knew God was for him and God was with him. So it didn't matter what happened. He trusted his God. He trusted his God. Do you trust your God? Do you trust that when he says he cares for you, he really does? Do you trust when he says he's going to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory? Do you believe that he really will? Do you believe the word of God that talks about the righteous man in Psalms 112? It says the righteous man does not fear bad news, but he confidently trusts God to care for him. To care for him. If you're discouraged this morning, I want to encourage you to do two things. Lean into God's word and lean into God's people. This is a tough season for you. Let this be the season you press in. God, what are you saying to me? Opening up your Bible. What is your word saying to me today, God? What do you want me to know? And lean into the people that God has placed around you. Let them bring life and encouragement to you. Don't be afraid to bear your soul with them and just simply say, I'm weak. And I'll end by saying this. And I said this to some of our leaders this morning. The Bible does say this, he promises this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When your pride keeps you from saying that there's a need in your life, you tie the hands of God. 
God may want to meet that need through you humbling yourself, saying, I need help. And when you're humble, you, you open up the floodgates for the grace of God to come. But when you're prideful, God himself opposes issue. So humble yourselves. If you're weak, tell them you're weak. Tell someone else you're weak. If you're discouraged, humble yourself. Tell someone you're discouraged. Let the grace of God come to you. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's everything that we need. Everything we need can be found in you and your word and your promises and your spirit. It can also be found in your body, your people. Lord, I pray that today you would encourage your church. I pray you would encourage them, God, to bring their need to you to cast their cares on you because you care for them like your word says. As a matter of fact, what our our eyes closed, if you're here, you say, Pastor Gabe, listen, I'm not gonna ask you to come to the front. I'm not gonna ask you to do anything. But if you say, this is for me, I just want you to lift your hands to heaven right now. Both of them, lift your hands up to heaven. And I wanna pray for you. And as you're lifting your hands to heaven, I want you, let this be an exchange Let's give him the stress. Let's give him the fear. Let's give him the anxiety. But let's receive from him the peace that he comes to give. Lord, I thank you for your peace that passes all understanding. Encourage your children that are walking through it, that are going through it today, that you're with them and you're for them. That is the promise, Jesus, I believe you came to make to us. When you said, my peace, I leave with you, you were saying, I'm going to be with you. My Holy Spirit is going to be with you. So we're never, ever alone. Thank you for peace and grace and strength today to your people. And I pray that they would trust in your promise that you can turn whatever it is they're facing around for their good and for the detriment of the enemy enemy of their soul. Give them grace today. You can put your hands down. Now when everybody's eyes closed and everybody's heads bowed, if you're here and you say, Pastor Gabe, I'm far from God. I came here just because someone invited me or maybe I just stumbled your way in here. But as I've been talking to you this morning, you know very clearly, very plainly, I need Jesus in my life. I'm not saved. I'm not born again. I'm not right with him. I want to tell you, you're one step away from the greatest decision you've ever made in your life. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you could be his child. So you can be free from your guilt, from your shame, from your bondage, from the things that weigh you down. He loves you. And you, can, you have the ability not only to have heaven one day, but you have the ability to be in his kingdom and be his child today. That is the good news. That your sins can be forgiven and you can be right with him. So with no one looking around, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you if you're born again. And if you want to be born again, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing magical, mystical about the prayer. It's simply our prayer of surrender. And God, by the drawing of the Holy Spirit, is going to draw you to himself. And he's going to meet you right where you're at. 
I'm gonna ask you to pray these words with me. One, two, three, if that's you, lift up your hand. If you say, that's me, thank you. I see your hand, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Don't be ashamed, don't be embarrassed. This is your moment, this is your moment. Anyone else? Say, this is my moment to be born again. Praise God. You can put them down. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud with every person that's praying this prayer to be born again today. Say these words with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. So I turn from my sin to follow you. I repent of my sin and I give it to you. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer to be born again.